1: It's been an incredible week here in Ireland with lots of data on house prices, national accounts, the summer economic statement. Um, I did a blog yesterday, um, but I'd still like to talk about some of the aspects around that in a second. Uh, but first of all, Chris, um, I suppose returning to one of our old themes, which is the whole argument and debate around inflation. Bond yields, how markets are reacting. We've had two pieces of inflation data this week in the United Kingdom and the United States. So, at the end of the week, how do you feel about that whole inflation debate at this juncture? And more importantly, where you think inflation and markets are likely to take us?
0: Thanks, Jim. Well, how I feel about the debate is that the gap between markets and experts, I, I use the term carefully has never been wider. Uh, The markets are taking all this inflation data on the chin. With some wobbles in equity markets, it's beginning to feel to me that equity markets are starting, just starting to get nervous about the inflation outlook. Um, It's very, very small, and it could turn around in the next half an hour, quite frankly. But equity markets, although they're still very close to their highs, particularly in the States, to me, are starting to look as if they think the best of the good news is behind us and that there could well be some bad news, particularly on inflation, in front of us. Now, of course, the inflation news in the States for the last few months, um, over months, has been bad. The inflation numbers keep coming in at a high level and always much worse than expected. The headline inflation numbers from the States, as we discussed the other day, are over 5% now. And the way in which the markets, or at least some important markets, are taking this on the chin, I've spoken about my nervousness about equities, the bond market seems pretty undisturbed by this. It moves around a little bit, but I just looked up the 10-year Treasury yield, and it seems to be about 1.3%. Now, if you told me, you, or I think any economist, financial market type at the beginning of the year. That by the middle of the year we'd be running U.S. inflation over five percent, and the ten-year treasury still yielding one point something. I think we we would have been um, laughed at uh, the idea that that could happen. You know, real yields, um, which in a crude way are just the difference between bond yields and inflation um, of of around f- minus four um, percent, is, is something that I've never seen before or if I have, I haven't noticed, and it hasn't lasted very long, and we would have thought was unachievable. Uh, Real yields are important in a whole host of contexts, Uh, not least they're supposed to tell you what the bond market is expecting for real economic growth going forward. Now, there's no way anybody in the bond market could think that US real GDP growth over the next few years is going to average at minus 4%. So what on earth is going on? experts, and I loosely and with a smile on my face place myself and you in this category, Jim, would would say that the inflation outlook has deteriorated and, as I say, that the bond market wouldn't have reacted in the way that it had and that sooner or later something has to crack. We would say that either these inflation numbers now have to start coming down pretty quickly or the bond market is going to have a tantrum. One of those two things must happen over the next while, I would have thought, and that that gap between experts worrying about inflation and markets not worrying about inflation must at some point close. Now, what I think the bond market is doing is that it's listening to what the Federal Reserve, the entity that sets interest rates in the United States, who keeps saying that they will not allow inflation to run out of control and that they will deal with it if it does. But they don't expect to have to do anything drastic because they expect all of this inflation that we're seeing to be temporary. It's already lasted longer than I suspect they thought and is already a worse problem than they thought. But they keep saying it's temporary. And there are good reasons for saying that. We've talked about how it's only really some very big components, things like car prices and rental car prices in particular, driving inflation up. But there are signs of it leaking into um, Wages—only very preliminary signs—but the, but there are one or two. Here in the UK, we've had similar soundings being made by the interest rate-setting entity, the Bank of England, and they're, if anything, a little bit more hawkish than the Federal Reserve across the Atlantic. And two members of the interest rate-setting committee, the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, have hinted this week that they think. That the day in which U- UK interest rates have to rise is approaching faster than anybody currently thinks, and that and that they think that interest rates may have to rise quite soon. And that, and I think that's one of the things that's put a little bit of wind in the sails of sterling, the UK currency, particularly against the euro. It, it for the last while it's been very slowly, gradually creeping up. Um, It all comes down, I think, for for people listening to this podcast, to what does this all mean for me, particularly with respect to interest rates. And that, of course, raises the um, review of interest rate setting that was conducted or published at least um, a few days ago by the European Central Bank. And they did lots of interesting things. For, For years, they've had this weird target of inflation close to but under 2%. Which was very different to the symmetrical inflation targets set in the UK and the United States. They've done away with this weird target and have got a symmetrical target around 2%, is what they're saying. Within the ECB, there seems to be a split as to what that actually means in practice for European and therefore Irish interest rates going forward. Jens Weidmann, the Bundesbank hard money man, thinks that it doesn't make much of a difference at all and that it, they will not do what the Fed is doing. And actively encourage inflation to be above two percent. Clearly, inflation is a a lot way, a long way above two percent in the United States. Biden is saying that they would not tolerate that. Certainly not encourage it in the way that the Fed has done. Olli Wren, the representative on the ECB from Finland, familiar to those people who remember. Uh, the, the role of the, the Troika and, and European officials during uh, uh, Ireland's financial crisis, um, thinks that it won't make much difference in practice, that in fact that uh, um, it won't make much difference in particular to what the ECB does to respect to famous quantitative easing, the amount of money that they're printing. Um, the, Christine Lagarde, the head of the ECB, has promised further clarity on all of this and what it all means at, at the next... Meeting of the ECB. So we await um, further rhetoric about what, what all of this means and perhaps some clarity on that Bidman versus Wren debate. The overall outlook for inflation depends in no small part on what happens to growth. And global growth, again, there's a divergence of opinion. It's beginning to look like the best news on growth, at least in the short term, might be behind us. We all know that as economies have come out of their pandemic, Um, or at least partially come out of their pandemic. The growth has exploded everywhere. But the country that did the best earliest, China, over the last three months has definitely slowed down. So that initial spurt as economies reopened, there's one big economy that is showing signs of slowing down and the best news on growth being behind it. And people are starting to speculate that maybe that's true for places like Europe, the UK and the United States. That remains to be seen, but um, we, we will see. So um, the markets are saying with some nervousness that they accept that inflation is going to be temporary, but I think that nervousness is growing, and I think that it's not going to take much more bad news on inflation for two things to happen. One is that interest rates um, in the marketplace at least, particularly bonds, are going to go up. Um, Secondly, I think that expectations for short-term interest rates, and this is what will drive Things like mortgage rates in Ireland and the UK, they will start to go up. So I think that we need to start thinking about higher interest rates sooner than we previously thought, unless the inflation numbers suddenly take a dive. If they continue doing what they're doing over the summer, um, then I think that we could be in trouble on the interest rate front and, and mortgage holders will need to start worrying. And I also think that equity market investors will get increasingly nervous about that um, inflation outlook and therefore what's happening to interest rates and bond yields because they drive equity prices. Um, Investors in markets always ask at this point in time, well, if inflation is going to be a bigger problem than we thought, where's the best place for my money? Well, it certainly isn't cash because that inflation rate erodes one for one the value of your cash. So that's not a good place to be. And the honest truth is that if you look at history, There aren't an awful lot of places to hide. There are classic inflation hedges, like commodities, for instance. But there's an old saying in markets that you should only ever rent commodities, not own them. And it could well be that commodities for a while are the place to be. But that's for real professional traders only. People talk about, well, in a time of inflation, you want to own real assets. Real assets are physical things, like like equities, for example. They are physical things or claims on physical things. Property is often thought of as a reasonable hedge against inflation. The problem with looking at historical episodes of inflation from the past and what has worked well is that when you look at the different asset classes, equities, bonds, cash, property, real estate, different things work well at different times. There's no consistent pattern of where you should hide. My own view is that equities in the short term are not a hedge against inflation, despite the fact that they are a real asset. Um, And by short term, I mean at least a year because of that interest rate worry that equities will be damaged more by the interest rate rise than by the protection they offer as a real asset. But over the long haul, and by that, that could be as long as 10 years. This was true in the 1970s, for example, for some equity markets. Equities will beat inflation. But that long haul can be very, very long. So, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of places to hide if you're an investor. Um, uh, But I do think that it brings back the time horizon question that if you're a long run investor, equities will still be okay, but it could be a pretty violent ride from here to okay. If you're a mortgage holder, then I think that you need to start thinking very seriously. about locking in these very low interest rates, if you possibly can, um, rather than being on the standard variable rate. If you are a person worried about the interest rate outlook, that's something that you should do. Um, And I know that um, people regard property as a good place to park money, and so it's proving. I mean, as we know, there's a house price boom going on globally. It's even hit Ireland, I think, Jim, um, recently. So it's a really tricky situation, um, there there are big gaps between markets and what economists are saying. And the message that I'd like to leave people with today is that over the next few months, one way or another, that gap is going to close. Do you have any views or thoughts about where the best place for your money in that kind of environment is? And would you agree that that description of the, of the environment that I've just put forward is a reasonable summary of the current situation?
1: Uh, Recently, Chris, I took part in an interest rate survey amongst economists for a Sunday newspaper, and I penciled in one increase of a quarter of 1% in ECB rates before the end of 2022. Um, And I thought I was being extremely um, cautious, conservative, whatever way you want to put it. I thought others would come in with significantly higher forecasts. But in the event I was the most negative, I think I was the only one that expected a rate increase by the end of 2022. So that tells me something about where some of the economics community is at the moment, uh, you know, very relaxed about the interest rate front. But you have to look at, um, you know, what's happening on the growth front. And I guess what's happening in Europe is of most significance to us here in Ireland in terms of interest rate policy and so on. Um, You know, you describe how, There was a strong rebound in economic activity and there's now clear evidence that we're starting to see a bit of a slowdown. You mentioned China. Uh, There's evidence of that in the United States and some indicators as well. Um, Not a lot in Europe yet, but that is the nature of pent up demand. You know, when you get the sudden release of pent up demand into the system, economic activity will pick up very strongly for a while and then things will settle down and normalize. Um, That's certainly my sense about Europe at the moment. And um, back in 2017, 2018, um, when the Eurozone economy was starting to show decent signs of life, I was sort of thinking at that stage, but in 2020, we should start to think about uh, the possibility of the European Central Bank moving away from its ultra low interest rate policy. Um, In the event I was wrong. Um, and the reason why I was wrong was not because of COVID-19. That obviously had a massive impact in 2020, but I was wrong before that. I was wrong in 2019 uh, because, as is always the case with Europe, when you get a little bit of a growth spurt, spurt excuse me, it runs out of steam very quickly. And that's exactly what happened to the Eurozone in 2019 for a variety of reasons. So Europe has, for years, or the Eurozone particularly, has had this inability to gather any real economic momentum that would threaten inflation in a serious way. So I suspect, I have to say, that that's what we are going to see in Europe. You will see, as economies are opened up, there will be pent-up demand coming back into the system, that it will run out of steam and things will settle down. And as a consequence of that, um, you know, my one increase of a quarter percent by the end of 2022... Um, is certainly something I would feel I should never feel confident or happy about an economic or interest rate forecast. uh, Because as as we've often discussed, economic forecasting is a waste of time anyway, but we still have to do it. We're paid to do it. Uh, But I feel you know reasonably relaxed but you asked me the question about what that means for markets. Well I'd 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 agree with your perspective. Um I think markets will continue to worry about the inflationary potential, the implications of that for bond yields, for short-term interest rates, and that could certainly deliver um a little bit of a bumpy ride for equity markets. But um I would have the view that I think you you have expressed that in the slightly long-term, you know, equities still, to me personally, is the place I'd want to be. And in fact, it's where I still have most of my own um, self-managed pension. Uh, From the perspective of Irish mortgage holders, um, it is, uh, you you know, you mentioned people should start to look at the possibility of locking in. Um, One of the things that's starting to be introduced here by a few of the smaller players is the concept of an ultra-long mortgage fix, as in 30 years. I think at least one of the smaller players has introduced this. I would expect others to follow suit. And to me, the rates on offer at the moment for 30-year mortgages, for example, are incredibly attractive in a historical context, okay? And they're also attractive if you believe that, as I do, that short-term interest rates are going to rise at some stage. But the one thing... That has always been a problem with locking for any fixed rate mortgage, be it 5, 10, 20, 30 years, is the fact that if you want to move house, you lose your mortgage. But these products are now starting to address that and mortgages are becoming transferable.
0: I have a question more than a comment there, Jim, because one of the things that would concern me there would be the terms and conditions of that long term mortgage fix. Because uh, they could be some hidden or not so hidden charges if you break the mortgage. Because if you've got a 30-year mortgage, you should expect to move on average at least once during that, that time. And what would happen if you went to your bank five years into a 30-year mortgage and say that I'm selling my house, so therefore I'm going to repay my mortgage? Um, would there be a big penalty for, for ca- cashing that mortgage in or, or paying it off, and to be more accurate? And so I would strongly urge people to look at the small print of any more or any long term mortgage agreement that they reach, because sometimes there can be a, a rather hefty penalty for redeeming fixed mortgages early. So um, make sure that you, you know what you're signing up to when you are fixing your mortgage, particularly for long periods during which you might decide to, to sell up and repay that mortgage. So mind your eyes, definitely and, and a piece of advice. Like I, I I'd
1: agree I'd agree with that Chris. People would need to look very carefully at the terms and conditions because um, different institutions offer different things. Uh, but if if you you know you see a mortgage that suits you and that actually ticks those boxes, I certainly think uh, the fixed option um, is a reasonably sensible one. And I also feel that it would actually bring more stability to the Irish housing market. Um, one of the things about the Irish mortgage market, more than I think any other European mortgage market, with possible exception of the UK, I think is pretty similar. But we have a preponderance of mortgages on variable rates. Um, we we haven't gone for the European um, fixed rate model. And that's why the European fixed rate model during periods of interest rate volatility, which we haven't seen for quite some time now, but when we worked in markets together, interest rate volatility was a thing and that when interest rates went up or down in pretty significant ways that had a significant impact on the housing market here affordability etc so um, i'm not saying we're returning to that environment but the one thing fixing your mortgage it's an insurance policy Um, it protects you against adverse movements in exchange rates and it also does bring a greater level of stability to the housing market and to the economy but i i you know, go, go back on your point, that's really important. Uh, look at the fine print in the mortgage before you make any sort of decision.
0: That said, I would agree with you that um, provided there aren't any big penalties for moving before the end of the term of the mortgage, now would seem to be a very good time to at the very least think about fixing mortgage rates. Because as you said, if history is any guide, our own history of, of working in, in interest rate markets, um, interest rates at some point. Surely, have to go up because the simple point that follows from all of that discussion I made about the drivers of interest rates. Because when I talk about economic growth, when I talk about inflation, when I talk about bond yields, those are the things that will drive the mortgage rate going forward because they always have done in the past for very good reason. If interest rates don't go up, it's because things like economic growth have been very, very disappointing. That gap that I described earlier on will be closed. Like growth disappointing, and or, or could be if that happens. Yes, interest rates won't go up again, but it'll be a pretty miserable environment for, for growth. We got some news this week, and I know you've written about it on our Substack website, Jim, about Irish economic growth. And you made some comments in that blog about how, how hard and increasingly, ever increasingly hard it is to disentangle what's really going on in the Irish economy. Can you tell us something about what you actually think is happening? to Irish economic growth.
1: As you know, Chris, I have always um, in my career as an economist, uh, I've always done a lot of work on the Irish economy and, you know, watching the statistics, interpreting the st- statistics and basically trying to extrapolate from those statistics what the business implications are. Back in the 12th of July, 2016, was that, five years ago, last or last Monday, five years ago, yeah. I was at a press briefing where the Central Statistics Office was publishing the first quarter growth data for 2016. And at the beginning of that press conference, they mentioned that they had revised the 2015 growth performance. Initially, they had reported it at about 7.3%, which is a massive number anyway, but they had revised this up to (laughs) 26.3%. That was, we've discussed this before. That was Paul Krugman's Leprechaun Economics, et cetera, et cetera. But ever since then, my ability to interpret Irish economic growth data, at least the national accounts data, which was published yesterday, has, it's become incredibly difficult. And I find it incredibly frustrating. Um, I I, I sat through the CSO's briefing yesterday And by the end of it, I was tearing my hair out because uh, some of the numbers that were thrown out there were absolutely phenomenal. In an environment in 2020, I know it's historical, but actually does tell us a lot about what's happening to the economy again this year. So I think it is important. But last year in in a COVID environment, we know the economic pain that imposed on many parts of the economy. uh, Gross domestic product increased by 5.9%. The CSO, a couple of months back, had previously reported that at 3.4. So they're revising up rather than revising down at the 2020 economic outturn. And the the problem, of course, is that Irish GDP, and we've discussed this, is grossly exaggerated by the activities of multinationals. And the CSO, since that infamous day in July 2016, has tried to develop an alternative measure of economic activity that try and strip out, as they describe it, the effects of globalization. This is real geek stuff, okay? And I really struggled yesterday to write up the piece on the national accounts. There's so much geeky stuff in there. But they came up with this measure called Gross National Income Star, okay? So gross domestic product, is the value of goods and services produced in an economy okay, in a given time period. If you strip out the profit repatriations from the multinational sector, of which there are a lot in this country because we have such preponderance of multinational investment, you come up with the concept of gross national income. And then if you strip out again from gross national income, the depreciation on intellectual property assets, And a lot of, sorry, a small number of multinationals moved a lot of intellectual property assets into Ireland from 2015 onwards. And that was the basis for the um, leprechaun economics. So and those intellectual property assets have massive depreciation. So if you strip out that depreciation, if you strip out the depreciation on leased aircraft and aircraft leasing is an incredibly important part of the Irish economy going back to the days of Guinness Pete Aviation in the 80s. Um, And then if you strip out the net factor income of re-domiciled PLCs, okay, you come up with this measure called Gross National Income Star. And cutting through the rubbish, Gross National Income Star is a much more accurate representation of what's happening on the ground in the Irish economy. And last year... Gross national income star contracted by three and a half percent. Not a bad performance in the context of COVID, but still a more accurate representation. And what that reflects really is consumer spending was down by ten point four percent. Business investment was down by about twenty two percent. So a lot of the domestic demand components fell last year, as we know. So not surprisingly, we got the negative number. But just just to uh, finally put this in context, gross domestic product last year, which is the international metric, it is the metric against which our debt ratio, our budget deficit is measured. They are expressed as a percentage of GDP. So last year, GDP totaled 372.9 billion. But when you strip out those three concepts I went through there, the depreciation and so on, um, GNI star comes in at 208.2 billion. So that's basically telling us in a sense that Irish economic growth is exaggerated at the tune of about 165 billion. It's not quite that simple, but that's pretty much what it is telling us. So what I would say to anybody, and, and in fact, six months into this year, we only have data for the first quarter but on growth, and it's telling us exactly the same story. You know GDP is growing very strongly, but when you strip out those things, the underlying picture is significantly weaker. But I guess the message for anybody is when you're looking at the Irish economy more than any other co- economy in my experience, you really do need to delve beneath the statistics to find out what's really going on. And secondly, and very importantly, If you measure our debt and our budget deficit as a percentage of this big GDP number, they provide a flattering picture of our public finances. If you measure debt and if you measure a budget deficit as a percentage of GNI star, which is the correct thing to do, you, you discover that and you realize that we have a significant fiscal problem here at the moment. No surprises there following COVID, but indeed we had it coming into the co- to the COVID situation. That just made it worse.
0: Usual suspects, you call them, I think you could probably put a label called Sinn Féin on them, have accused the government in the wake of their summer economic statement of pursuing a return to austerity. Do you think that there's any accuracy in that statement?
1: <laughs> I was frustrated yesterday, Chris, with the national income accounts, okay? And particularly trying to write them up in some sort of way that made sense. I was Equally frustrated, earlier in the week, um, I think it was Wednesday night, uh, the government published the Summer Economic Statement. And the media rumour is that there was disagreement within government. Fina Fall, housing minister, felt there wasn't enough in there for housing investment. And he's launching a housing strategy, I think, next week. Whereas Pascal Donahoe, the minister of finance, was more interested in making sure the public finances remain on a sustainable path. So apparently that disagreement within government delayed the publication of the Summer Economic Statement. I have no idea whether that's true or not. I suspect it probably is. But the statement that was published, um, it's basically um, looking at the whole fiscal in an economic growth environment out to 2025. So what the government is doing here is it's projecting growth. And it's, this. sorry, I shouldn't say the government, the Department of Finance. It's projecting growth and is projecting where it intends driving the public finances, okay? And the, the general government deficit, which is basically the annual budget deficit, it, it, it's going to hit around 5.1% of GDP and 9.4% of GNI star this year. Big numbers. By 2025, as a percentage of GDP, they are projecting a deficit of 1.5% of GDP, and the general government deficit as a percentage of G&I star is at 2.8%. So in 2025, the Department of Finance reckons we will still be running budget deficits. And within that, there is significant growth in taxation, but there is more significant growth in government expenditure. So how anybody could possibly describe that as a return to austerity, beats me. And it does demonstrate the worst and most frustrating aspects of populist populist politics. So I I, I think it's mad stuff. I mean, I think as a country, or if we were a household or a business in this situation, I think it would be absolutely obscene for a Minister for Finance not to actually try and reduce the budget deficit. Um, I would actually have expected based on the speculation earlier in the week, and based on the talk about a return to austerity, I would have assumed we were looking at returning to budget surplus probably 2023. But no, we're looking at running budget deficits out to 2025. So that's fine. I mean, if government wants to do that, feels it has to do it, fine. But let people not turn around and argue that this is typical Fine Gael austerity. Um, Total rubbish, in my view. Well, you made that very clear welcome um we welcome clarity on this podcast
0: jim um thank you for that um we're almost out of time but um as we approach uh the release full release of lockdown in the uk on the 19th of july and um some further easing of restrictions in ireland on the same date we should spend one minute and i suspect no more than that on what we have dubbed COVID corner Just to mark that occasion and to note again that even since we last spoke, the numbers in the UK, case numbers for COVID are truly horrendous, certainly approaching the levels that the worst levels that were were posited only a few weeks ago. Um, Hospitalisations, sadly, are now growing exponentially in the UK. Chris Whitty, um, the chief medical officer for the UK, um, has said that hospitals are doubling every three weeks. And he's hinted that it would only take two or three doublings for uh, restrictions to have to be brought back in. My favorite mathematician who follows these numbers very assiduously agrees with Witty. He's got a different number. He says the hospitalizations are doubling actually every 15 days. So that's even quicker than Witty, assuming that Witty means by three weeks, 21 days. Either way, that's doubling very quickly. So um, that link between hospitalizations and cases. Um, Yes, it's been weakened, but there's a a growing fear here that it hasn't been weakened enough. And what is clearly happening is that the virus is just ripping through all of the unvaccinated or indeed the partially vaccinated. So it's a big worry. And I know that um, I've said on this podcast many times that the nature of the Delta variant means that country, all countries are going to get it and that Ireland is just a few weeks behind the UK and lo and behold, the Irish numbers in the last few days have started to spike. So I think it's a pretty tricky, if not grim, situation. Uh, two government ministers here in the UK have said in recent hours that um, further restrictions or the reintroduction of restrictions shouldn't be ruled out, but they but they are not forecasting it. Johnson, the prime minister, has said many times that um, there can be no going back, um, but I suspect he may well have to soften that tone in the days and weeks ahead it's going to be very numbers driven but it's a it, it is a very worrying situation 1200 scientists have uh, signed some kind of round robin letter saying that johnson's experiment with full unlocking with case numbers doing what they're doing in the uk is extremely dangerous not least because that level of infection the massive level of infection something like one in 40 people in the northeast of england at the moment have covid that's an extraordinary statistic That's a reservoir of infection from which variants, unfortunately, might grow. So we're talking about Delta at the moment. God forbid we might be talking about Epsilon quite soon. I certainly hope not, for all our sakes. So um, I think we should probably leave it there, Jim. We've run out of time. Um, Just to say to our listeners that from a podcast point of view, we're taking a week off. Um, There may well be stuff appearing written on the Substack website in the form of a blog but this podcast will be off air um, for a welcome break and we'll be back in about just over a week's time. So thanks, Jim.
1: Excellent, Chris. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.